Jesus prepared his disciples for his departure with these words and assured them of their own future. Jesus said, Trust me when I say that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or at least believe on account of the works themselves. I assure you that whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will send another companion who will be with you forever. This companion is the spirit of truth, whom the world can't receive because it neither sees him nor recognizes him. You know him because he lives with you and will be with you. I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father. You are in me, and I am in you. Whoever loves me will keep my word. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I told you. Now reading from the first letter of John, chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called God's children. And that is what we are. Because the world didn't recognize Jesus, it doesn't recognize us. Dear friends, now we are God's children, and it hasn't yet appeared what we will be. We know that when Jesus appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And all who have this hope in Jesus purify themselves, even as he is pure. The word of the Lord.
Since May, our sermon series has focused on the question of what does it mean to be human? What is the nature or the essence of our humanness? Throughout the centuries, many have posed different answers, such as, we are a tool-using animal, said Thomas Carlyle. We are a political animal, said Aristotle. We are a symbol-using animal, said Edmund Burke. And Eric Fromm says, we are the only animal for whom our own existence is a problem which we have to solve. In this series, we have seen how the answer to this question determines not only our view of the world and our place in it and our relationship with others, um, but it also determines our destiny as people. And that is what I want to focus on today. In the ancient world, religion was characterized by fear. In fact, I don't think we've outgrown that that pattern. There's too many people that practice religion out of fear rather than out of faith. People believe certain powers dominated their lives and their destiny. It's the same kind of impulse by which people today will read and follow horoscopes more than they will Scripture as such. Destiny is often used interchangeably with fate, but they should be differentiated. Fate is a power or agency that predetermines and orders the course of events such that we consider those events to be inevitable or unavoidable. It was bound to happen because of outside forces were causing it such. Destiny, on the other hand, is a future scenario determined by decisions we make. It refers to the finality of events as they have worked themselves out. Well, mixed in with these questions of whether life and its outcomes are predetermined or whether human choice shapes the world that we're a part of, is either an optimistic view of the world or a pessimistic view. At one extreme, secular humanists view humanity as little more than a product of evolutionary forces. Nevertheless, they have an optimistic view about our future potential. They believe one day we will progress to the point that we will take hold of our own history and our own story, and we'll be able to control our own destiny. At the other extreme, you have atheistic existentialists who tend to view life as being without value or meaning. Their pessimism or lack of belief in a creator, therefore, does not account for the presence of beauty in this world or experiences of love or of joy or of self-sacrifice that is threaded and integral to our human story. Others may not adhere to either extreme, but their sense of destiny is nevertheless reflected in their beliefs. Um, Two weeks ago, Ted Koppel on CBS Morning News did an interview with the conservative columnist George F. Will. They spoke of Will's economic and moral ideology as a conservative and of his passion and love of baseball. He has in his in his office, a picture of, of Michelangelo's God-touching man, but instead of it just being two hands, God is delivering a baseball to humanity. Um, 
That's how much he loves baseball. Then Koppel asked George Will of his notion of God. Are you a believer? No. Are you an atheist or an agnostic? I describe myself as an amiable, low-voltage atheist. You have no sense of eternity? No. No, this is enough. This is it. And then referring to the fact that he had to write a column each week, he said this, 750 words and I'm out of here. Doesn't that sound sad? I felt the same way about a month ago when, when I attended um, my colleague and friend Rich Gantenbein's memorial service. It was a fabulous service and just an amazing affirmation of hope in the resurrection to eternal life offered through Jesus Christ. And yet one man who, and, and several people spoke whose, whose lives Rich intersected with. And because Rich um, was heavily involved in Alcoholics Anonymous, he invested a lot of his time and energy in people um, who had that, who had that, um, that same need for support and, and uh, survival. And one such man spoke that day and talked about how many different times Rich was there when he needed him. When, he, when things were going to go south in a hurry and Rich was the one who helped him be reoriented and, and, and understand what really matters in life and make a different choice. And at the end of everything that he had to say, he said, well, I don't think there's anything after this. This is all there is in this life, and, um, and um, I wish there were more, and that was it. And all of us sat there and said, have you not been listening or hearing anything that's been said? I'm like, dude, because he was a dude, let me tell you. He, <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to go, oh my goodness, how do people live with that, with that sense of what of what our destiny is, or a lack of one. Theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, in his classic work, The Nature and Destiny of Man, argued that as humans, we are creative, we have creative and imaginative powers, and we can transcend our minds, since we can make our own thoughts the object of contemplation. We can also transcend the natural world, since we can manipulate natural forces to create new possibilities. Yet because we cannot find ultimate meaning in what we can transcend, we cannot, we cannot find meaning within ourselves or in the natural world. And that's why Niebuhr says we turn to religion so that we can make sense of our lives and sense of what this is all about. The Christian view of who we are is that, as we've said throughout this series, we're made in the image of God. And unlike other religions which believe in a duality between mind and body, where the mind is good and the body is bad, and the whole point is for the mind to escape this world and the body, the Christian view sees both mind and body as good together because we are created such by God. 
We're made to live in harmony with others and in accordance with God's will. But the story of the Bible is simply this. We don't. Anyone who reads the biblical narrative knows that we humans have free choice. God has made us to choose. And our choices have consequences. So out of rebellion, we violate God's created order and choose to make ourselves the center and source of our own meaning. And this self-directed love rebels against God. It exploits our neighbor and even the creation that's been entrusted to our care. The religious leaders of Jesus' day insisted that external and ritual forms of purity could right some of the wrongs between us and God if they were observed carefully. But Jesus spoke of the source of our problem more pointedly when he said this, From within, out of human hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside, and it's, the, it's these things that make us unclean. As someone has said, the, human, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Human evil is universal in its extent, it is self-centered in its nature, and it's inward in its origin, and its defilement affects everything. The Bible delineates this paradox of our human condition, that we bear the dignity of being made in the image of God, and we bear the depravity of our sinful hearts. We're capable of being noble and ignoble, of being creative and destructive, of behaving like God or acting like animals. We're able to think, choose, create, love, worship, but we're also able to hate, covet, malign, express hostility, and even kill. The message and ministry of Jesus is that God overcomes evil, not by destroying evildoers, but by taking our evil upon himself. God's love is a suffering love. Christ gave his life for us to make our hearts clean from the defilement of sin, to transform our hearts by the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit. So the work of Christ frees us from guilt of, by God's forgiveness, frees us from the bondage of our self-centeredness, and frees us from fear about the future, what lies ahead. Christians live by hope, not by fear. Hoping God's plan to set the world right again. Hope that in Christ, God reconciles all things to himself. Hope in a bodily resurrection and a future existence. Hope of being at home with God. Hope of being transformed into Christ's likeness. Hope of Christ's glorious return and the restoration of creation and a final end to evil and death. Hope in heaven and earth being united as one. We have few hymns that get it right, but 
thank goodness this is my father's world does because it says heaven and earth will be one that is what all of scripture points to and moves toward and and culminates in to be fully fully human to me is to be in fellowship with god the Godhead, God, three persons in one, creator, redeemer, and sustainer, to the one who creates by speaking his word, to the one who has made flesh and dwelt among us, to the one who teaches us the truth of all things concerning Christ Jesus. I was compelled by something Bernard of Clairvaux wrote many, many years ago. God certainly is well within his rights in claiming to himself the works of his own hands, the gifts himself has given. I should say he himself has given. How should the thing made, how should the thing, that's you and me, made, fail to love the maker? I know you don't like to think of yourself as a thing, but how should it not love him with all its power since only by his gift has it got anything? Humans called into being out of nothing by God's free act and raised to such high honor, how patent is our debt of love to God's most just demand? How vastly God has multiplied his mercy too in saving us and creation in such a way. Why we had turned our glory into the likeness of a calf that eats hay. Our sin had brought us to the level of the beasts that know not God at all. Now listen to this. If then I owe myself entire to my creator, what shall I give to my recreator? The means of our remaking too. Think what they cost. It was far easier to make than to redeem. For God had but to speak the word and all things were created, including myself. But he who made me by a word and made me once for all spent on the task of my remaking many words and many marvelous deeds and suffered grievous and humiliating wrongs. What reward, therefore, shall I give the Lord of all the benefits that he has done for me? By his first work, creation, he gave me to myself. By the next, he gave himself to me. Our destiny to me is a lot less about a destination than it is about being in relationship with God. Too much of preaching in the past is all about getting into heaven when it ought to be about fellowship with God and community with one another. What it means to live as a Christian is not so much about having hope for some other existence, but how the reality of that future existence directs how we live here and now. How the convictions of that, of that new reality affects this reality. Such that we do not despise this life, but we elevate it through God's presence and the working of God's mission. To be Christ-like 
means that we learn to serve others and to work for the reconciliation of this world. So what were we made for? What is our destiny? I think we're made for love of God and love of one another. Comes back to that. John Stott said it well. God made me for loving, and loving is giving, it is self-giving. Therefore, in order to be myself, to be fully human, I would add, I have to deny myself and give myself in love for God and others. In order to be free, I have to learn to serve. In order to live, I have to die to my own self-centeredness. In order to find myself, I have to lose myself in loving As Michelangelo said, when I am yours, then at last I am completely myself. For I'm not myself until I am yours. I know for a lot of people, our sense of destiny is to arrive at the pearly gates and to enter into heaven's glory. But all of what Jesus talked about was God's glory coming here. Coming to us, coming to earth, of heaven and earth being made one, of being in relationship and fellowship with God and with one another. If that is our destiny, then it affects how we live here and now. We ought to live as people destined for such a reality, for such a truth. So be it.